This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I'm so happy that this is happening. And um, it is a very unusual circumstance. Uh, you just heard that voice come on, and that voice will continue to come on about every five minutes to say that this call is being recorded and monitored uh, because Jarvis is calling in from San Quentin State Prison. And every 15 minutes, Jarvis will have to reconnect. Um, so we'll get an announcement that says, you have 60 seconds. And at that time, um, at the end of that, Jarvis will be disconnected and he will call back. Uh, so that's part of the structure of this Dharma talk. Um, and uh, during that time, it takes usually about two minutes for Jarvis to reconnect. So during that time, we may sit in silence or I may um, add something or say something. We'll just see what's happening at that time and I'll invite us um, as we wait for Jarvis to reconnect. And um, I just want to say I'm so happy that this is happening at Zen Center. And it's also very striking to me that Jarvis's first talk at Zen Center, calling in from death row at San Quentin, is on the first national holiday of Juneteenth. And there's something powerful to me about this. And especially because Jarvis is calling from San Quentin, a place that is so rooted in historical and systemic racism. And there's so much suffering and constriction there. And yet, uh, Jarvis, you are one of the most free people that I know. And I'm so glad that all of us at Zen Center and the wider community have a chance to um, be with you this morning and learn from your knowledge and your life experience and your wisdom. And I hope that people can hear um, the quality is what it is, um, but Kodo will let me know if there's any, if there's a big problem, and this is the best we can do at this time. So Jarvis, please. Well, can you hear me now? I can. Can people, can, Kodo, can you talk some more, Jarvis? I, uh, can you hear me? Well, just yes. keep, uh, yes, he said yes. So just oh, cool. go ahead. I don't. Yeah, people can hear you. So it's, oh, okay. we're, it, we're, oh, okay. we're in your hands. Thank you, everybody. No, just go ahead, Jarvis. We're good. Okay, cool. All right, I just want to just uh, allow myself to uh, thank everybody for allowing me to talk and give a, uh, uh, some knowledge about how I became a Buddhist. I think it's important that I talk about that because um, everybody who come to prison, we all, you know, a lot of people find religion, and sometimes it is and sometimes it's not, but yeah, I like to talk about how I became a Buddhist, because I think that's important. Um, in 1985, I was charged with a murder case uh, that I did not commit, and during that process, I was introduced to an investigator, Melody Yarmerchild. Melody became my investigator, but also someone who became very special to me in that she believed in me and thought that um, I can go through a process of growth. And it, it was like that. 
I wrote a letter while I was in the courthouse in a tank waiting for the jury to come back to see that if I was sentenced to death or should I spend the rest of my life in prison. Melody at that time, because I was down there by myself, brought in a little magazine pamphlet and the name of it, I think it was Wingspan or something like that. And inside this magazine, there was this little ad that said, you know, here's a free book in the name of his life and relationship to death. And I thought while, you know, while I'm waiting on the jury, I can right here sign up and ask for a copy and mail it out when I get to San Quentin. And that's exactly what happened. And um, on the same day that I was given the death sentence, I got a letter from Lisa Leghorn, who was a senior student of Repuches, and she and I began a correspondence, and other senior students I, I began to correspond with. And at some point, um, Repuches wanted to meet me, and he came to visit me, and when I looked at him, I thought he was the real deal, and he... I felt something in him that just made me um, stick close to what he was saying to me. You have 60 seconds remaining. After that, he came to visit me several more times, and then he asked me, did I want to take an empowerment ceremony? And I said yes. But at the same time, I was worried about what that meant. And over another two or three months, we went through the process, and he came to see me, and we went and had... Um, we went down down, down the tier in the uh, visiting and we went into this little visiting uh, legal visiting booth and uh, he began, Shireen and Melody and him began to give my power ceremony um, and it was, a, it was a, a, a kind of experience that I really didn't know how to respond to So we'll wait for Jarvis to call back. Um, and in this waiting, I think I want to say a little more about, I didn't say it lightly, that Jarvis is one of the most free people that I know. Um, the, the situation that he lives in is also one of the most constricting situations that I know. But through his practice, Jarvis has so much aliveness and life and humor. And I probably laugh with Jarvis more than I laugh with most people in my life. And he has a way that his practice is engaged all day with other inmates, with uh, prison correction officers who live there. There's all these ways that Jarvis is putting into practice, uh, his practice. And it's true that I read his book called Finding Freedom. And it just touched me in some way that was so deep. I was um, in Mexico at the time and the ocean waves, I was right on the coast of Mexico and the waves were crashing and nature was there in such a powerful way. 
And I was reading Finding Freedom of Jarvis's experiences in San Quentin prison and on death row and the ways that he kept choosing life. And for me, that's also one of the things that's most meaningful in how I know Jarvis is that he chooses life over and over and over again in the midst of such trying circumstances and so many disappointments and so much injustice and he chooses life and he chooses compassion. And it's, it's ironic to me or just strange that uh, I can share so much joy with Jarvis and that he brings joy into so many people's lives. And if you haven't read his, his, both of his books and the book that David Sheff wrote about him, I highly recommend them. The challenges for all of us about how do we live in the midst of what constricts us in our lives and also in the midst of uncertainty and here we are now not knowing when Jarvis is going to call back and it's taking longer than it usually does. So how we meet this kind of the constrictions in our life and the uncertainty and what shuts us down. How does practice help sustain us to not get lost? To me, Jarvis is an amazing teacher on how to do this and how he brings practice into his life. He wrote his books when he was living in the adjustment center, the whole, the isolation unit in San Quentin where he lived, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was 24 years, he lived longer than I think anybody who's been in the adjustment center. And not because of his behavior, but because he was, what he was convicted of, of sharpening a knife used in the killing of a prison guard. So it, he was kept there. And he, the only thing he had to write his books with was the filler of a pen. Hello? This is Global Telling. I have a call from a Jarvis Masters. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin, San Quentin, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial five now. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Okay. Hello? Okay, Jarvis, we're back. Okay, thank you. Um, I don't know where I left off, but I became um, the senior students of Repeshay started sending me a lot of transcripts of talks that Repeshay had. And I had an opportunity to look at them and read them, but I felt like I was doing that a lot more than they were able to listen to because I had the actual transcripts. So I, I would go over them and over them and over them again. And um, sometimes I did it with a candy bar, you know, uh, because I did not uh, realize, I did not take it in a way that I thought I should have uh, until I went out to the yard and I stepped in front of somebody who was going to kill some, a, a man who was gay. Or the time that um, I had to hold somebody down on the yard because they just told him that his mother died. Or even when um, I, I, I spoke to guards about, you know, their own kids and not wanting their kids to come to jail. I mean, all these experiences gave me something that 
want to say more, Jarvis, about what does your practice actually look like and how you practice? Well, you know what? I just sit. You know, when I first started <laughs> practicing, I would just sit. I mean, I had, you know, I would sit and I was bored and I found me a piece of candy and I just looked at it, you know? And uh, there were words that I understood and words I didn't understand. But then when I went out to the yard, and I ran into so many incidents, you know, uh, I realized that, man, I am doing something that uh, I'm reading about, you know? Mm-hmm. And man, I'm looking at um, scars on the man's body and seeing that was the, um, that was the trap that we had lived in. So I became more of a voice that spoke to the stories of a lot of guys on death row. And that's how that bird has my wing developed. As I went throughout the years of trying to understand the nature of my practice, I brought a lot of people with me, but I didn't do it in a way where it became so uh, holy. Let me just use that word. Um, Let's call Angela telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And ever since then, we've just been talking, you know, and sometimes you don't see the Buddhism in my words, but they're there, and people pick up on that. Um, And I also pick up on people's pain and my pain. So it's been, you know, almost 30 years, almost 30 years to the day that, you know, I met Repiché. And I didn't realize how long that been until I was asked to give this talk. And I was thinking of what should I really, really sit with while I'm talking to you guys, and that is those stories. I mean, they all have, they all a longer story, but the narrative is clear to me is that I walked in and understood the nature of my own suffering and the people around me, but not just the inmates. You know, there's a lot of guards who were, and still are angry, you know, they're very angry when they come to work. And I know for a fact, and I say this a lot, that that same guard is going home and he's going to have kids. And if we, 
irritate him, make him mad. We all know what's going to happen to his kids. And everybody understood that, you know. So at times, people realize that, you know, they do not want to send these, their thoughts, these guys out to hurt their kids. Um, and that's a bit of a real good thing for me because it really challenged who our enemies are, you know. Uh, we always like to think that when we see a guard, we automatically uh, recognize him as our enemy. And I always believe that, you know, if your enemy, if your enemy is who is sitting next to you, there's something you can say to that. And what I did was, uh, I, I, I spoke to guards and I wrote guards kids back in. Yeah, um, they used to write me, and they still do write me, and I write them back, but I just felt like my whole life had a purpose here, and I had to dedicate that purpose um, until I got out of prison, and that's been the story of my life, really. You know, you, sp you spoke to me about Rinpoche saying to you, um, just move things aside, or I don't remember the exact phrase, you know, move them away. You don't have to fight and hit it. So, do you want to say anything about that and how you practice with that? Yeah, you know, when I met Rinpoche, I was, you know, I was not in a good place, you know, and I, you know, I cursed and I did a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, that really, you know, um, didn't feel right to me. And when I spoke to him, he said, you know what, just, you know, you'll never be able to beat the walls down. You'll never be able to, you know, cut through the bars, you know. So if you can't do that, all you have to do, Jarvis, is move them out the way. And when he said that, I understood exactly what he meant. He, to me, meant that you don't have to see the bars if you don't need to. That you can focus in on your practice and everything you thought was restraining you or keeping you from being the person you are, all you had to do is move all those negativities out the way. And that has been essential for me in prison. Now, I honestly think it was a life-changing experience because I knew how to do time and I knew how to feel free. Mm -hmm. And this was something, this is something that I, I, I think about every day when I get up. You know, how do I move these things out my way so I can find myself in a better place? And it's not every day that I'm able to do that. But, you know, that's the practice. And I love that idea of, um, trying to, you know, reset my mind every time I get up in the morning. And Repiché showed me how to do that. And, you, and I feel really, really grateful for that. You've talked to me about the the teacher who you wrote to, because it seemed, this seems really relevant. To, all of us have things that we don't know how to move away or move to the side or how to get away from the experiences that we hold on to that constrict us. Do you want to talk, tell the story about that teacher? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, I have a lot of stories, but those stories that really, really shake me up, uh, I tend to uh, remember more so than the others. But I was, uh, right after Finding Freedom, I was writing to this teacher. He said to me that he was uh, working in South Central, which is LA, and that he was white and that he didn't know what to do because he kept seeing kids coming into his classroom with pistols, you know, and he didn't know how to approach them because in his life he thought, you know, 
people get shot that way. So he started writing me stressed out. And I started writing him back, and we were back and forth. And he had some, you know, he kept telling me more stories about what what his fear felt like and how should I, how should he meditate? And, you know, I, at some point I said, you know what, hey, you need to just go ahead and uh, go on a vacation, you know, uh, get out of this thing. And, you know, I, he went through that for maybe a year, kept saying he was going to go and he was going to go. Then finally he went and he went to Hawaii and I got a postcard from him. And on that postcard, he said, I'm really, really doing good. Uh, I'm so glad you encouraged me to do this. I'm out here on the beach, you know, and I'm reading this really, really good book. And if you want me to get it for you, I will. And, you know, he said, um, have you ever, you probably have never read it, but have you ever read Hannibal Lecter? And I realized at that moment that he took everything I was asking him not to take with him. He took the fear, he took the violence, he took everything, and he made it comfortable. And that's what got me the most. He made it comfortable. And I just, you know, my whole letter starts to change when I start writing him. Um, and those letters spoke of, you know, you can't, you know, you can't run from this pain you're going through, man. You can't hide from it. Uh, ain't no vacation in the world is going to cover up what you're feeling. And he started going to a Zen center out there in Los Angeles somewhere. And um, I, was, I don't write to him now, but he really taught me that you cannot take all the pain and suffering with you. You know, uh, you can't leave it with you, leave it back um, where you're going. And it was really, really touching that I, I was able to learn that experience the wrong way, but I was able to see it. I was able to understand. I was able to see the beach and everything else that he was telling me, but I also heard that he still owned a lot of hurt, pain, and fear. And I never confronted him with that, but, you know, going to going to meditation was something that I really felt um would, you know, uh, benefit from. Mm -hmm. And it's a good story, too, because, you know, I say that, I, I tell that story to a lot of people in here, and they instantly get it, you know. Now, I don't know what they, exactly what they do with it, but when a story like that tells them that, the, you know, getting out of prison is not going to help you if you don't help yourself now, um, and it was a, it was really, really something that I, I, I feel really close to that particular story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can, I can feel that, and no. yeah, I, I, I can feel that, Jarvis, just how, how, how close that is to your practice, and close it is to what you share with other people, and help people um, recognize it's a powerful story. You've also talked. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Was there something else you were thinking of? Well, I was just also thinking about, you know, um, hatred, you know, and some of the things I felt um, when I when I when I speak to people, you know, um, not too long ago, uh, maybe a year ago, I, I went. To, I was going to go see my father. He, he decided to come see me after about fifty years. 
And when he first thought to see me, you know, it was all arranged, and he never came. You know, he said he had a bowling match and all the people <laughs> depended on him. But eventually he came, and I didn't know what to say to him because there was a lot of violence that I remember uh, as a child living with him. And I seen a lot in the room next door. You know, it wasn't the violence that I saw outside, but when I first heard the violence, it was in the room next door, and it was my mother, and that was not ever... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. So I went out there not knowing what I was going to say. You know, was I going to just, you know, recount everything that he ever did to me and my mother and everything? He had 60 seconds remaining. Or, or was I going to be the Buddhist and not say anything and just try to find compassion, you know, and what he said? And I didn't know which one I was going out there with until I seen him and we sat down. So when I looked at him, you know what, it didn't matter what, who was right and who was wrong. You know, I realized that I had this opportunity right here and right now to just be with him and, you know, find out, you know, who he was and allow him to be who I was. And the, 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 the thing about that visit was that, you know, I had all these misgivings about going out there to see him, but I realized at the end of our visit, when he asked that he could he have more time to visit me, that said to me, you know, it was all worth seeing him and being with my father. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you. So as we wait for Jarvis to call back, um, I'm just wondering how it is to be with and, and feel whatever is touching you and what you're hearing Jarvis share. Jarvis may speak more about it. And in Finding Freedom, he one of the very powerful stories is called Scars. And he mentioned it. And, and Jarvis may say more, I don't know. But when he's told me about it, being out on the yard where people were playing basketball and their shirts were off. And he was looking and seeing all these scars on people's bodies. Hello? This is Global Link. You have a prepaid call from... Made up. The California State Prison, San Quentin, San Quentin, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. So Jarvis, Hello? hi, do you want to say more about the, the visit with your father? Oh yeah, yeah, I was going to say that I was surprised in my response to him. Uh, I didn't know what my response was going to be other than 
uh, I was going to go out there. And when I went out there, it, nothing mattered no more. You know, I did not want to see him that way. I didn't want to believe my mother another way. It's just that he was 80-something years old, and I did not have time. You know, I did not have time. We didn't have time. And I say that to a lot of people, but I had to see if I was serious about that. And I was. I was. And ever since then, you know, I look at what time means to me. And some of these things are, my mind was trained to think about when, many, many years ago, but now they're, you know, they play themselves out, you know, um, in ways that I can benefit, I see the benefits of my practice. And, you know, it's just something that you live through and you understand in your, in those experiences, how you can relate those experiences to everyone in prison on death row. You know, we have a tendency to remember many, many terrible stories about our fathers. And those stories are the stories that, you know, um, traps us, traps us in that life experiences that we do not know how to get our way out of. Um, so when I told this story to guys on death row, they didn't even believe that I had a visit from my father. I mean, your father, really? Did he really come up here? You know, we read your book, Sign of Freedom, and, you know, you hate your father, man. I wouldn't be, well, I, man, I don't know why you wouldn't see him like that. And, you know, I, I, I tell the guys, you know, hey, I didn't know what I was going to say out there neither, you know. Um, but I can tell you this. He looked it old, and you do not want to just spend a lot of time talking to somebody that you're not going to prove a point to. And when I decided that, it was a really, really good visit with him. And a lot of us know how to do that, and a lot of us don't. 
But it's all, no matter whether it's me or the guy down the way, it's a practice. You know, you wake up and you try to feel like, what is it going to make me happy today? Or what is it going to make me um, not mess with anybody, not get in the guard's face, not, you know. Um, and it's just, you know, you generate a lot of good karma. And I can't imagine not having this practice being here almost 40 years. No, I've been here 40 years. Um, so, whether I'm in here or I'm out there, outside the prison, I realize that, you know, there's there's there's, there's something you can do that, that will generate a lot of love and compassion for other people, and that's where I'm at on that. Yeah. Well, I know that that's such a deep part of your life and your practice, and you, you went... You said something really quickly. You said, you know, you had to generate self-compassion for yourself so compassion could go outward. And I wonder how you practice that, Jarvis. How do you practice, you know, generating self-compassion? Well, I mean, all you have to do is say you're wrong. I mean, that's, you know, if you curse somebody out and you know that you're wrong and you, and you realize that, that deeply inside you, it's very easy go and say to someone else, I apologize. But if you cannot apologize to yourself, if there's something that says, I'm not wrong, you're, I'm, you know, I'm right, you're not, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, um, you can never get to that point where your apologies are very, very sincere. So, you know, you work on yourself to be able to communicate to other people. Um, that's something I do a lot, too, because I just know that it has to come from a real serious place when I talk to people. And a lot of times it is, and a lot of times it isn't. But uh, when things are serious, I really, really come from another place inside me, a place of compassion and understanding where that person is. I just feel a lot of times how, you know, what the gift is that I have to have a teacher like Rappaché and and what he taught me and the things that he taught me that now today they, I see the benefit and, um, and it's just what it is, you know. So, you know, there's, there's about eight more minutes before um, we bring this kind of talk to a close and open it up for questions and answers. So I wonder, you know, what else you've been thinking about that you would really like to have the opportunity to say and speak about? as well. So, you know, 
know, when I talk to guards today, I see, you know, I see, I see something real about them that I hadn't seen. Well, I see it, but I see more and more of it that we are both locked up. You know, we're both inside this prison. And what I do when he's not around and what he does when he's at home really depends on what we, you know, who we are, you know, as human beings. And one of the things I do more than anything else is that I do not want anyone, any guard to leave here because I said something that's going to allow him to beat up, beat his kids up, you know. And I, I try to extend that to every guard. Um, there's so many things that they go through, you know, and mental health, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who dedicate themselves to helping people who have, who suffering from mental health. And I never want to get those folks mad either because, you know, their, their, their speech is important to be understood. So, I mean... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. So I share that with you guys because, you know, um, prison has its own language. And, you know, when I talk to Pamela a lot, uh, she always, you know, let me know that things are a lot worse than what I'm experiencing here. And that I should dedicate my practice to that. And it's so real, it feels so real to do that, you know, it feels real to be able to sit down and just think about what you can do for someone, or think about what you can do for yourself, too, and that was something I didn't know how to do, you know, you come into Buddhism and all you want to do is help somebody, and you go out there and you want to say this, you want to say that, but you forget about helping yourself, and Lee, that's what I was talking about, if you don't help yourself, you're not going to be able to help anyone else. You know, they're supposed to go hand in hand, but a lot of times they are not sitting with you. You know, you are living in your own being, and you've dedicated your life to something. And to play that out, you know, generates a lot of compassion toward the other person. Uh, I like to pick someone I don't like and try to work with that, you know. That's where my practice. I love doing that. I love to talk to people I don't like. Or they don't like me uh, because they're my real teachers here. You know, they're the ones that's going to test my resolve in my practice. They're the ones who's going to get me upset. And they're the ones who's going to uh, see my success, you know, see my accomplishments. So, so that's what I'm doing. Yeah, that's, 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 that's my whole trip here. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you've, you've said a lot, Jarvis, and um, in, in a in a few moments, you know, there'll be a closing chant and then a opening to people being able to ask their questions. Um, my, my guess is you're going to be disconnected from us in just a few minutes. And, um, you know, you just, you said, you know, you love to work on people that you don't like and um, do your practice. And I, so I wondered, you know, I, I like, I like working on myself. Right. With people I don't like. Uh huh. You know, that's my whole trip. I like working on myself. Mm -hmm. I would, you know, walk up to somebody I know don't like me, you know, and I would see who I am when I speak to that person. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, it's, a fun, it's, it's, it's actually funny. It, it's a fun thing to do because you're sincere 
I'm just laughing because not most of us don't say that's really fun, but I, I love that you do. And that you, and you, yeah, it is. Uh -huh. it, is. <laughs> it is because, you know, you're, how do you really, really know you're Buddhist? You know, that's what, you know, that, that gets me a lot because everybody comes to jail and they always want to, you know, be something, you know, whether it's Christianity, Islam, or whatever. And, you know, I had that feeling at first, too, you know. I had that feeling eating that candy bar. But then I realized it's not just the candy bar. That candy bar has a whole lot of other stuff going on, you know. Uh, how do you get that candy bar out of your hand, you know. Um, and even if you do get it out of your hand, something else is coming into your hand. Um, so I sit there and I work on myself that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's it's wonderful, Jarvis, and I'm so I'm so glad that this is happening. And um, I just wonder if there's any closing thought you have before you're disconnected and before we do the closing chant. Well, I, um, you know, I think you people scare me. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm sitting here and I don't know how many people are listening. I don't know who they are, and just the fact that. I'm stumbling all over the place. It's very. It, it, you have 60 seconds remaining. Plus this woman too, in my ear. I, you <laughs> know, it's, it's, I, I, I want to thank you guys for allowing me to um, speak out of my heart, speak out of my mind, and I'm, I'm, I'm here to answer those questions if they have Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.